chapter 16. Y'all turn the monitors down a little bit. I'm really hearing myself in here. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Thank you, guys. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to begin today looking at someone who's mentioned over and over again in the Bible. In fact, he's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament and 60 times in the New Testament. Uh, he's been the subject of authors and artists and sculptures throughout history. Uh, one author said that few have had so varied a career as he. Shepherd and monarch, poet and soldier, champion of his people, and outlaw in the caves of Judea. Beloved of Jonathan and persecuted by Saul, van- vanquishing the Philistines one day and accompanying them into battle another. He was a shepherd, he was a warrior, he was a musician, he was a saint, he was a sinner, 
He was a prophet. He was a king. But he's probably best known as a giant killer. He killed a giant named Goliath. And by now, most of you know who I'm talking about, don't you? I'm talking about none other than David. And I'm so glad that you're here today, whether this is your 1,000th uh, uh, Sunday or your very first Sunday, because we're beginning a brand new sermon series using scenes from the life of David. Scenes from the life of David. And this morning we're going to begin considering his beginning. Uh, we're going to see him anointed as king. But I have to be honest, we're going to look at David maybe in a way that you have not heard him uh, put forth before. We're not going to look so much in this series at his great accomplishments, killing uh, Goliath and those sorts of things. We're actually going to be looking at his miserable failures. We're going to look at some of the failures in David's life. And we're calling this series Flawed Hero. Flawed Hero. Scenes from the life of David. You know, David is a hero of the faith. If you go into the New Testament book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter is known as the Hall of Faith. And it talks about men and women who are filled with faith. And David is mentioned there by name in chapter 11, verse 32 of Hebrews. Uh, David is actually an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. One day Jesus will actually rule upon the throne of David in the everlasting kingdom. But I'm getting ahead of myself because today we're just going to begin looking at his life and seeing really his beginning uh, as he is anointed as king. And if you'd like to follow along, if you'd find in your Bible, or there's one in the pew rack in front of you, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, 1 Samuel is the uh, ninth book in the Old Testament, so start at Genesis and keep going until you get to uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, if you get to the book of Kings or Chronicles, you've gone too far. So just back up and find 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. Now, before we read together the Scripture, I need to introduce you to two other characters that are going to appear in our reading today. The first one is named Samuel. And Samuel is a very important uh, man in the Old Testament. Uh, he is a prophet and he is a judge. He's a prophet, a judge. His name is Samuel. And then the second person that I need to introduce you to is a man by the name of Saul. Now, this is not Saul that we read about in the New Testament. This is Saul of the Old Testament. And he, Saul is the very first king of Israel. And what's happened here is God has rejected Saul as being king in Israel because Saul has rejected God's word or God's instruction. He's been disobedient. And so God has rejected Saul as being king. That's what's going on. And Samuel, our prophet and judge, Samuel is sad. And he's mourning over what has happened in Saul's life and what is happening in the, in the uh, people's lives as a result of that. And now that you know that, look with me at verse 1. Of 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, that is like an animal horn or a flask with oil in it, and go, I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. 
So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed us before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, this is a pretty straightforward story, I think. But uh, there are many lessons that we can learn from this beginning, this start that David had. And I want to point out two of them in particular to you this morning. I want to point out to you, first of all, uh, as we think about this story and think about the life of the people and think about David, I want to suggest to you that uh, God carries on His work. God carries on His work. You know, men come and go. Men succeed and fail. Uh, Kingdoms rise and fall. But God is eternal. Uh, It's been said that God buries His workmen but carries on his work. What I'm saying is that no man or woman, no person, can ultimately thwart God's purposes in our world. That's an important thing to remember, especially in the day in which we live. God knew all along what Saul was going to do. Uh, When Saul disobeyed the Lord and God rejected him, God was not caught off guard. Uh, God was not surprised that Saul had done uh, what he did. Uh, God did not wring his hands in despair when it actually happened. In fact, God knew all along and God had a plan and God had a man. He had a plan and he had a man. In fact, if you were to take and put your finger there and go to the 13th chapter, uh, verses 13 and 14, you would read these words. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But then he says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, these words. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. God had a plan And God had a man. And the plan was a new king. And the man was a man named David. You know, all this reminds me of our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, way back in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you ever thought about it, beloved, but God knew all along that they were going to disobey Him. 
And they were going to eat of that forbidden fruit. And yet He created them anyway. Now that alone is enough to blow your mind that He created them anyway. And then when they did eat the forbidden fruit, when they sinned, God revealed to them that He had a plan and He had a man. And in fact, if you go back to the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, you just listen today, we find that God talks about His plan and His man. And we find the Gospel in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. You can jot this reference down. I'll give you several references. You might want to jot down as we're going today and look them up later. But Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But listen to what he says in verse 15 of Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's an unusual phrase in itself, talking about her seed. That's not common. It's often talked about the man's seed, but it talks about her seed. Why? Because he's talking about the virgin who will bring forth a son, a man, the God-man. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head the, uh, and you shall bruise his heel. And here you have a picture of the gospel. You have a picture of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news in Genesis. Her seed, the one born of a virgin, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross for us. His heel would be bruised, but he would uh, crush the head of the serpent. In fact, the Bible calls the Lord Jesus. Did you know that the Bible calls him in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We have to remember that God is not bound by time and, and God sees everything all at once. He knows everything all at once. And Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God had a plan and God had a man and God is working out His plan and God carries on His work. And part of that plan... So, preacher, why do you mention... The Lord Jesus here. Well, part of that plan is what's taking place here in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He's anointing David to be king. And you realize through David's line would come the one who is the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting, is it not, that the Lord Jesus, if you fast forward, would be born to the Virgin Mary in this same place in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. You see, God carries on His work. And there we have perfect God and perfect man joined to the flesh. A Savior who would come to the line of a man named David. You see, beloved, God carries on His work. Never forget that. Especially in the turmoil that we live in today. 
God is working out His plan. But there's a second lesson here that I want to impress upon your heart. And it involves the heart. And it's simply this. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. You know, Samuel here is told to go and to anoint this king, and he's fearful. If you study the life of King Saul, um, King Saul got very unstable, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, it, it, it was really an interesting story. I won't uh, give you all the details. Hopefully that will whet your appetite to go back and read about his life. But Samuel is told to go and, and to take a heifer and to sacrifice. Uh, of course, all those Old Testament sacrifices are a picture uh, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come. In the Old Testament, they're looking forward to the cross. Here, we're looking back at the cross, but it all involves Christ and the cross. And he's told to take this heifer and to sacrifice and to get there and invite Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice and to the meal that would follow. And when they're coming, uh, the oldest son, Eliab, walks on the scene in verse 6 and when they came, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. When Samuel, the prophet and judge, looked at Eliab, Jesse's firstborn son, uh, he was just convinced this is the one. He had a, a kingly look about him. Uh, no doubt he was tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, no doubt uh, he probably had good hair and, and straight white teeth. I mean, he was something to behold tall, dark, and handsome, and kingly looking, and, and he had a kingly presence about him, but God looked at him and said, no, he's not the one. And so the other sons come, Abinadab, no. Shammah, no. And seven of the sons, it says, passed before Samuel, and each one, the Lord says, no, 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 no. And you have to wonder if Samuel is beginning to, to think, well, what's going on here? I mean, Lord, you sent me here to anoint the next king. You said it was of the sons of, of, of uh, Jesse here, and, and, and none of them are the ones. And then Samuel pretty much says, what? Are these, are these all the sons you have? Look at verse 11. Are all the young men here? And it says, there remains the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Boy, David's described when we first meet him in glowing terms, isn't he? Uh, he's the youngest. He's the shepherd. Um, by the way, you say, well, how young was he? Well, scholars kind of believe he was probably about 15 or 16 years old at this point in his life. And he's keeping the sheep. If you keep reading in his life, you know, he, was, he had some challenges with his older brothers and I don't think it was an easy spot to fill in the life of this family. When you look at the way Jesse described because first of all, Jesse didn't even invite him in the first place. Did you notice that? Uh, it's almost as if Jesse said, well, surely you don't want David. You don't want to look at David. But Samuel said, we're not going to sit down. Uh, we're not going to eat till he comes. Look at verses 12 and 13 as David walks on the scene. He sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy with bright eyes, good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And we know that he anointed him. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Um, why was it that Samuel was wrong 
when it came to Eliab. I mean, you think about godly man like Samuel, and he's a prophet and a judge, and I mean, why was he wrong? I mean, Eliab walks on the scene, and, and Samuel's convinced he's the one. Why was he wrong? And then what about the other brothers? Well, the key is in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I meant to look it up, but got uh, busy with other things, but wasn't Abraham Lincoln, you know, Abraham Lincoln wasn't, um, well, he was kind of homely, wasn't he, if you look at him, really? And wasn't Abraham Lincoln that said that God must have loved common people because he made so many of them? Um, he says to Samuel here, don't base your opinion on his outward appearance, how tall he is or how handsome he is or how good his hair is or his teeth or his muscles. They don't misunderstand. God is not against someone being beautiful. God is not against someone being handsome because after all, who made them in the first place? It was God. Even David himself, he was a good-looking fellow. It says he was ruddy. And if you're like me and you were growing up in Sunday school, you always wonder, what does that word mean, that he was ruddy? And scholars are a little bit, uh, they disagree a little bit uh, about what that means. Some believe it meant that he was red-headed. Others believe, no, it meant that he was uh, suntanned, uh, you know, from being out. He was bronzed. Uh, I, could, I would even go as far as to say it could mean both. Uh, he was ruddy, either red-headed or suntanned or both, that he had bright eyes. Um, and it said he was good-looking. So it's not that God's against good-looking people. He, he made them in the first place. But those things are physical. Uh, old J. Vernon McGee's the one who said that God was an interior decorator. He always looks on the inside. And you look at David, and it wasn't so much his outward appearance that, that God focused on. God saw David's heart. That's a good reminder to us, is it not, beloved? In fact, if you look at other Scriptures that talk about this, I've already mentioned the one. Let me read it again and listen to it again. 1 Samuel 13, 14 when Samuel was talking to Saul again, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Then the New Testament's interesting when you read it. Acts 13, 22 and 23. Acts 13, 22 and 23. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. God looked at David and he saw a man after his own heart. He had a heart for God. Now, we're not talking about the organ that's in our chest that's pumping blood through our bodies right now. We're referring to the heart here. The Bible's talking about a person's emotions and their will and their intellect and their desires. It's the real person. It's who they really are. It's the real them. And though no one else seems to have thought much about David, his own dad didn't call him to the feast and to the sacrifice. He had to be told to go and get him. 
We read at other times that even his older brother Eliot would, would say some harsh things to him. Uh, later on, we, we find that God took notice of David. Psalm chapter 78, verses 70 and 72 say it this way, He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Psalm 78, 70 through 72. I love that, don't you? God delights to take people whom others overlook and discount and don't think much of. God loves to take those types of people and use them for His glory. In fact, jot this reference down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-29. through 29. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. Maybe you know what it is to be overlooked and discounted. Maybe you were the one that was chosen last on the playground when they're choosing teams. And they keep choosing and you keep standing there. And finally you're the only one left. And someone says, well, I guess I'll have to take it. God delights to take that person first and use them for His glory. David had a heart for God. But here's a very important question we need to wrestle with. And that is how did David get a heart for God in the first place? How did he get a heart for God? Can I just tell you he wasn't born with a heart for God? This is not a natural thing that we have a heart for God. In fact, David says this about himself. These are David's words of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51.5. Here's what David says about himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. It wasn't a natural thing. In fact, the Bible doesn't describe our heart in a very kind way. Our natural heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? We have heart disease. Spiritual heart disease. A sin nature. Unless you doubt it, let me put you in the nursery for a while. And see those sweet, beautiful babies. And you've seen it in your own family. How many of you had to teach that child that they took the toy from the other kid? And then that kid crackles. They wanted that. We have a sin nature about us. Nobody has to teach us to sin. Nobody has to teach us to lie. Nobody has to teach us to cheat. We have a heart problem. A spiritual heart problem. And we wrestle with it, don't we? All through. How many of you somebody to teach you to sin? No, you did that on your own. You're a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. All of us are. We're sinners. And our heart is filled with sin. It's desperately wicked. And our sin separates us from a holy God. 
And so what we need is we need a new heart. And the only way we can get a new heart is by turning from our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, He was born without sin. Born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to celebrate that before long at Christmas time. He grew and lived a sinless, perfect life and then voluntarily laid down His life on the cross, shed His precious blood and died. But then He arose again. We celebrate that every year at Easter time. And He lives again today. And the Bible says He will save us if we'll ask Him. How did David get a heart for God? Well, it's obvious that David had a heart for God at this point in his life because he had trusted in the Lord for salvation. Again, they were looking toward the cross and the promise of the coming of the Messiah. Pictured in all those Old Testament sacrifices, we look back at the cross today. But we see proof of that in David's most famous writing. In fact, if you don't know anything else about David before you walked in church today, you might have remembered the story about uh, David and Goliath. Uh, you might have thought about the famous statue of David. And you might have thought of these words. His most famous writing, Psalm 23, verse 1, where he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. How many countless people have been comforted by the words of Psalm 23? But you know, I want you to listen to it again. The verse I just read. And I want you to notice how personal it is. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The reason he didn't have to want is because he had the Lord as his shepherd. And then you keep reading through the psalm and you see how God blessed him because he had God as his shepherd. David knew the Lord as Savior and shepherd. And I wonder today, friend, do you know the Lord as your Savior and shepherd? Talking about the heart, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, these words, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart. That's not the pumping organ in your chest. That's mind, intellect, emotions, will. The real you inside. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes into righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. And friend, won't you do that today? Won't you believe in your heart and call upon Him with your mouth? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 these words, For whoever, whoever, that's me, that's you, that's anybody, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that today? Believed on your heart. Called upon Him with your mouth to save. Now, I've got to be honest, we're not done with David. And I hope you'll come back next week as we continue to 
travel with him and journey with him and see some of his failings and see what we can learn from his failings. But right now it's crucial that you settle your eternal destiny. And it's very simple. Without Christ, there is hell. With Christ, there is heaven. That's just a simple Bible truth. And here's the good news. God wants you to go to heaven. That's why He sent Jesus to die for you. And so what do you have to do? You have to trust Jesus. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth, it says. And you will be saved. Beloved, come today and trust the Son of David, as He's called, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. Be real quiet and real still. Nobody looking around. Friend, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there ever been a time in your life where you recognized that you were a sinner and you needed rescued? And you turned from your sin and you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If not, as God is tugging at your heart this morning, why don't you do that? Right there where you are, right where you're seated, why don't you place your faith in Christ? I'd like to lead you, if you'd like to do that, in a simple prayer. And if you want to trust Jesus today, you can pray these words, meaning them from your heart. And the Bible says He will save you. And we're going to encourage you, if you do that, to let us know that you've trusted Christ. We want to help you to grow. We want to help you to take the next steps in your journey with Christ. But it begins with faith in Christ. And maybe you'd like to pray a prayer like this today. And it's not the prayer that saves, it's Jesus that saves you. But the prayer is a wonderful way for you to express to the Lord your belief and your desire. So right where you are, whoever you are, you could pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus is God. And He died for my sin. And He shed His precious blood. And I believe that He arose again the third day. And He's alive right now. And Lord, the best way I know how I ask you to come into my life to save me and to make me your child. Help me to never be ashamed for you of you. Help me to live my life for you. Help me to glorify you with my life. Now while your head is still bowed and your eyes are still closed, in this quiet moment, I wonder if anybody prayed that prayer and you meant it and you asked Jesus into your life 
Here's what I want you to do. Would you just slip your hand up? Nobody else is looking around. Would you slip your hand up and say, Preacher, I prayed that prayer. All right, I see you. 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 All right, you can put them down. Anybody else? Slip a hand up and say, Yes, I prayed that prayer today and I meant it. I asked Jesus into my life. All right, I see you. God bless you. I want to encourage you to tell someone today that you asked Jesus into your life. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. He's not ashamed of you. I'd love to talk with you personally. Put some literature in your hands and help you to grow. Talk to you about things like baptism and church membership and all those things. But it's key right now that you share with others that you've asked Jesus into your life. So I want to encourage you to do that. You can do that during this invitation song. You can walk down and just greet me here and share that. You can do it right after the service. You can tell your husband or wife or mom or dad or your person on the pew next to you, whoever it is, a friend that brought you today, and just share with them that you asked Jesus into your life. That's the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. Now, Father, I thank you for the many that prayed that prayer today and believed on Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them super courage to make it known to others that they've asked Jesus into their life. And Lord, I pray that you bless them in their newfound faith in Christ. Help them to walk in newness of life. Lord, thank you for the joy that's going on right now in their hearts and in heaven as they turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. Now, Father, I pray that if anybody here is still resisting your Spirit's working right now, I pray the Holy Spirit will work in their lives. And, Lord, they would submit and yield themselves to death. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's still time, friend, if you have not trusted Christ and you'd like to, or maybe you have questions, you say, Preacher, I don't understand something. We're going to sing a closing hymn, December 307, just as I am. I'm going to be right down at the front. Turn this microphone off. I would love to talk with you or help you. My wife is here. If there's a lady here who'd like to talk with us today, But as we sing today, we're going to be standing. You may step out from your pew and walk down. And we'd love to greet you and help you in some way. If you have a question, if you just prayed to receive Christ and you just want to come and share that today, we would love to encourage you and help you and place some literature in your hand. We're not here to embarrass anybody. Uh, We're not here to make a spectacle of anybody. We just want to encourage you. And so as we're singing, whatever the need is, you come. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you just have another burden or, or, or you're just a really burden. You may come and pray as well. The altar is open. Our altar is always open here at a service. If you come and pray. I'm going to be down at the front, 307. As we stand and sing today, you come as God leads you. Just as I am, I stand and sing.